Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 67, Hundreds of Homes. Because there have literally been hundreds of homes, just so many of them. Many, many. Uh, and that's only counting film. There have also been many stage adaptations, not to mention the official books and uh, the, I'm sure, many, many uh, unofficial spinoffs of Sherlock Holmes <laughs> throughout the ages. Yeah, right. All of the near adaptations and illusions and stuff. We're probably looking more at like thousands of homes, but home starts with an H. So hundreds <laughs> it is. We got to keep our alliteration strong. Yes, we have traditions and we stick to them when it suits our needs. Uh, but anyway, what are we talking about today, Jonathan? So we're talking about uh, different adaptations of Sherlock Holmes. But before we can do that, we have to talk about where Sherlock Holmes comes from. Uh, because he is, as I found out this week, the Guinness World Record holder for the most portrayed uh, human fictional character um, in film and television history ever. Uh, and he was created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um and the inspiration for the character was a professor that Conan Doyle had uh, in school named Dr. Bell, uh, who was very observant. Um, and then also the very first uh, fictional detective ever named C. Auguste Dupont, uh, written by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, who was a French detective. And um, it's actually interesting because the stories are structured pretty much exactly like a Sherlock Holmes story. It's written in the first person from the point of view of the sidekick who uh, tags along with this amateur detective as he solves crimes that the police can't figure out. Um, and uh, so uh, along with some other like uh, detective stories, um, Doyle took all of this stuff and created his character, uh, Sherlock Holmes, which uh, he published in several books and uh, short stories through the magazine The Strand. Um, and they just exploded. They became incredibly popular to the point where, uh, as you can imagine, these were running for years and, uh, Conan Doyle got tired of writing these stories. He wrote lots of other stuff, historical fiction, uh, romances and stuff like that. Um, like from the romanticism movement. Um, and so he, he tried to kill off Sherlock Holmes in the only story that Moriarty actually makes a physical appearance in, um, and there's very, very famous scene of them tumbling over the, the waterfall. The Reichenbach the, Falls. <laughs> the Reichenbach Falls, yes, to be specific. Uh, but the public did not like that. Uh, there was a huge hue and cry. And um, so Conan Doyle was compelled to bring back uh, Sherlock Holmes um, for many more stories. I think up to that point he had two novels and... Uh, there were two of the what are now the canon uh, collections of short stories. And then there would be two more novels and three more collections of short stories to follow after the character uh, came back. Um, and so, yeah, so that's how kind of the canon came about. Um, and if we're talking about Sherlock Holmes, we also have to talk about Watson. And the character of Watson is interesting because the inspiration for Watson actually basically came from Conan Doyle himself. Um, and there are a lot of characteristics of Watson that are mirrored in the author. But it's also interesting because Watson gives the audience a, a point of view into the life of Sherlock Holmes. We're the observer. We're um, the person of average intellect observing this uh, genius, basically trying to figure out all of these puzzles. Um, but 
that is the literary history. Alex, why don't you talk us a little bit about the uh, film history before we get into the ones that we will actually be covering. Radio, Jonathan. And uh, so the first English language adaptation of Sherlock Holmes in film came about in 1912 with a series of short films. Um, the first of which I have posted on our social media if you want to find that. And we'll put a link to it in the uh, blog post today. Um, At the film links. Yes. Uh, and it starred uh, George Travell. Ironically enough, he was a French actor who was the first to play Sherlock in uh, the first English adaptation. There were a couple of adaptations in Germany and Hungary um, before this, but this is the first English one, the first British production. So it kind of feels like the right place to start. And it's really, it's the first one that I think we still have that it still exists. Um, as we've talked about before in the past, a lot of the old uh, silent era movies are just gone, which is sad. But we do have yeah. a lot of the George uh, Travell short Sherlock stories that are around. Um, and it would continue to take off uh, and, and be made pretty much consistently uh, up until the modern day incarnations um, like Robert Downey Jr. and um, Ian McClellan and uh, my personal favorite Bumblebee Scratch and Sniff. Um, sorry, I mean uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, warning: I have a Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> name generator up right now, and there will be a lot coming at you all about barbiturate chowder pants, or Billy Bong cheddar yeah, so, cheese, or bento box yeah. coggle swart. Um, but yeah, no. There- so if you're skipping around the episode and Alex like starts sounding like he's talking in tongues, he's just talking about Benedict Cumberbatch. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, no, but he, he's one of these characters who just has – he came about at the right time. He was popular right at the turn of the century when short film uh, – short silent film was becoming a big thing. Um, and he, he the, the character just hasn't rested. There's never been like a period where there wasn't um, uh, Sherlock Holmes adaptations being made in some way, shape, or form. And before – the film ones were even big. He was a very popular character to put on stage, um, especially in Britain. Obviously, hundreds of productions were done with him uh, as a character in adaptations, different stories with the same character. Um, it's a it's such a wonderfully simple setup, and it's had a ravenous fan base from the start. This might be this might because you know it's a big topic to talk about how angry fanboys and fangirls are these days um in terms to their favorite characters and their favorite properties but this might be the earliest example of a fan base being so big so popular so important and so ravenous that it affected what the creator did because yeah the, the fandom literally revolted when he tried to kill him off and he caved and brought it back um yeah so Reminds me, this is I not necessarily a new thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely not a new thing. It may be more pervasive, but this has kind of always happened. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't even have uh, like Reddit to complain on back in 1900. Obviously, they didn't. Right. Um, but they had newspapers. <laughs> they had newspapers. They had bar rooms and parlor rooms and, and such to uh, li- the literal chat rooms of the day in which right. they would uh, rage about Sherlock being killed off. And I'm sure they'd gather around and read the new stories together. Um, so it's it's a nice look not only at a fascinating character, at, um, at a steady stream of adaptations, but also one of the 
uh, biggest fandoms to have ever existed. Um, starting way back in like the 1890s uh, and going all the way up nowadays to Brindadric, uh Cap'n Crunch. Some of these are going to make more sense than others, and I apologize for that, <laughs> but I, uh, I'm doing my best here. Who built this algorithm? That's what I want to know. Uh, somebody on Tumblr? I don't know. Oh, I will, I will blast this thing out on social <laughs> for other people to use at their own discretion. It is a wonderful tool uh, for no particular purpose other than your own amusement. So With go great for power it. comes great responsibility. Yeah. But let's get specific, Jonathan. What adaptations are we talking about among the like thousands of Sherlock adaptations out there? What are we discussing today? Well, after... Uh, after combing through many listicles online, I have found what might be the uh, top three definitive adaptations of Sherlock Holmes um, that are constantly brought up as some of the best and or most popular and influential. Uh, so we're going to start off with The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1939, starring Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as John Watson. Uh, the film was directed by Sidney Lanfield, and it kicked off um, one of the waves of Holmes' popularity uh, in which Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce would go on to uh, create 14 follow-up films, uh, some more or less faithful to actual um, Conan Doyle stories. Some were just completely fabricated. You mean Mr. Holmes Goes to Washington is not a canon story? <laughs> no, it is not. Mr. Holmes, Africa Screams? No. Nope, 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 non-canon. <laughs> Definitely non-canon. And the second one we're going to talk about today comes from 1987, The Sign of Four, which is a movie made with longtime Sherlock star uh, Jeremy Brett as, you know, the eponymous detective, and uh, Edward Hardwick as uh, Watson. Uh, Jeremy Brett would play Sherlock on TV for like 10 years um, and he yeah. would do several, both TV movies and movie movies, as the character. Um, this particular movie happened to be directed by Peter Hammond. Um, but yeah, Jeremy Brett, very influential. I don't know if he's that well known outside of some very some care uh, some people who are diehard like Sherlock history fans, along with just Sherlock fans. Um, but this, and and we'll talk about this today. But this one had a large influence on uh, modern-day incarnations of uh, Sherlock, including the uh, Stephen Moffat uh, incarnation. Right, which is going to be the uh, last version that we talk about today. Uh, sorry if my audio is kind of weird. It is storming outside my window as of, like, five minutes before we started recording. Uh, just going to put that out there. And surprisingly enough, uh, it's not storming in L.A. Surprisingly. Um, yeah, so anyway, the last film uh, that we're going to be talking about, and I say film, but Alex, we are breaking new ground on the podcast today. It's our first TV episode. It is our first technical TV episode, even though it is an hour and a half long, probably longer than some of the uh, films that we've covered. Definitely some but of the that earlier is going ones. To, <laughs> right. So that's going to be um, the first episode of the BBC show Sherlock, and that first episode is called A Study in Pink. Um, the series was created by Stephen Moffat. Uh, the show stars... Burberry um, Cuckoo Clock. Yes. It stars Smaug and Bilbo Baggins, a.k.a. Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman as uh, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson, respectively. Bodybuild um, Cumbersome. 
And since we haven't done TV before, we haven't looked at uh, TV awards before, but we'll throw some out here. This episode has won a BAFTA for Best Editing uh, in Fiction and Entertainment, and also a Welsh BAFTA for Best Drama Series, Best Director of Photography, and Best Production Design. Did you know there are Welsh BAFTAs? I did not. I assumed one of the letters in BAFTA had a nationality, so it would have to be different if it was a different country. Right, doesn't but, uh, B stand for British? That's what I would have assumed, but I have no idea. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Well, Britain, Britain's the island, right? So, well, Wales is on Britain, Great Britain, right? I don't know. I'm probably offending a know. whole lot of Welshmen <laughs> right now, and I apologize for that. We're terrible. We're terrible Americans. Yeah. Uh, nah. What else is new? Anyway, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Real quick, Bumblebee Cover Girl, Buckyball Crumple Sack. Brandy Buck Countryside. As a side note, there is a clip somewhere of Benedict Cumberbatch describing what he thinks his name sounds like, uh, and he says that his name sounds like a fart underwater. So now that you have that image in your mind, um, we have we are breaking new ground twice on this podcast, Alex, because we are starting something new. Um, we tend to get a little bit rambly when we talk about uh, our movies, so we are uh, going to have our friend uh, Jason, former guest um, and future guest. The Blue uh, Jay. But yes, the Blue Jay on Twitter. Um, he's going to read us our uh, descriptions, so welcome, Jason. How about you give us the description for The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1939? Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I'm Jason. I'll be doing your movie summaries from here on out, and uh, we'll be starting with The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1939. We open on a man running for his life with the sound of howling in the background. He collapses after a heart attack, but the country physician who declares Sir Charles Baskerville dead is not satisfied that heart failure is the only cause of death. So he asks Sherlock Holmes to investigate and prevent a similar death of Sir Charles' son Henry. Holmes sends Watson to accompany Henry to the estate and see what he can find out. During the stay, Watson meets the suspicious housekeepers at the estate, the kind brother and sister who are the Baskervilles' closest neighbor, and even a run-in with a dangerous vagrant on the moor. There is a lot of talk about a mysterious hound that has haunted the Baskerville family for generations. Holmes and Watson must see through ages of jealousy to solve the case. And now back to you guys. Thanks, Jason. All right, Jonathan. So first of all, we have to talk about um, our Sherlock in this incarnation of Sherlock, and that is Basil Rathbone. Um, and uh, some notable things he's been in, he's played the villain in, uh, uh, the Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn version from the thirties. Classic. Which is absolutely classic. He was in the, uh, one of the Hitchcock films. I want to say it was Notorious. Um, oh, really? Playing the evil neo-Nazi or not even neo-Nazi, just OG Nazi. Um, yeah, I was gonna say that, that, that movie deals directly with Nazis. Yeah, no, old Nazis. <laughs> um, and he's, I just recently saw him in the court jester in which he kind of like reprises his role in, that's uh, one of, yeah, and it's one of my so family's favorite funny. movies. It is wonderful. Um, but he's, he's just a but very, do you take the vessel with the pestle? <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> um, yeah, but he, Rathbone is kind of like this, uh, really great character actor who loves to have fun and just really uh brings a role to life in this really kind of outlandish way and he does that with sherlock you get the sense that this version of sherlock is very very um 
madcap. He's very, um, for the fun of it, he's enjoying what he's doing in this very um, intense, fun way. And the whole movie is kind of shaped around the idea that for Sherlock, this is kind of a romp. Like you, you get yeah. the sense that it matters deeply to the characters who are involved in this mystery. But for Sherlock, this is about having fun um, exploring this mystery and solving it and doing all of the crazy stuff he can, like disguising himself like a really old man, which is a very, I love very the funny sequence um, in this movie. Um, you know, Sherlock does it well, but uh, uh, Rathbone does a very good turn as this guy, Sherlock. The disguises are are one of the greatest things about um, the character of Sherlock Holmes in a visual medium because you can read that you know Sherlock Holmes did this disguise and stuff, but when you see an actual uh, person like like having that beard on and and like doing the different voice, then he takes it off and you're like, oh wow, you look so different. Uh, I I think that's one of the greatest things about about watching these uh, adaptations. Yeah, and I think it's one of the uh, the funnest things. For the actors who play the character to do. Um, yeah. You know, this is... And, and you get the sense that uh, there's, you know... It's a studio system, so obviously there's different motivations. But there's a reason that Rathbone could do 14 Sherlock movies. Um, it, it's just such a fun character. Like, it's so madcap. It's so crazy. And uh, it's weird because it's in this world that's so dark and kind of horrific in this incarnation of the hound of the baskervilles yeah yeah it is interesting there there are some slight changes uh in the book for the most part though it kind of it gets the gist of the book and condenses it um but yeah basil rathbone has that he has a very much confidence this adaptation like he's very confident in his abilities uh he has a matter of factness like he just tells facts as they are yeah there's no doubt that this character is going to be able to solve what's going on Right. Yeah. It's a, there's a little bit less of the discovery in this one. And it's a little bit due to the nature of the story because, uh, you know, for a good meet in the middle, um, Holmes sends Watson out and Watson is kind of trying to figure stuff out. And then, uh, Holmes reveals that he's been there the whole time, but we haven't seen him for some of that. Uh, so at that point he already has a lot of the information and we don't get to see him, discovering the case like we get to do in some of the other stories um but uh speaking of holmes we have to talk about the um the watson uh interpretation in um nigel bruce and this is my least favorite watson uh he's fun but he's fun in this like uh bumbling sidekick kind of a way that just did not give me the the impression that the stories do um, right whenever you read them because Watson is not just like he's not dead weight for Holmes which I felt like he kind of was in this one yeah um, no Watson he, he actually a smart has guy. input and he's a doctor right for, right I mean yeah for crying out loud he's a doctor he's not dumb by any means um, he's just nowhere near on Holmes's level and he is there to right. show you how smart Holmes is like here's a, somebody he's you would us, assume or is, he's he's what we think we like He's probably a little bit above average intelligence. And so, you know, if we're connecting with Watson, we're feeling good about ourselves. And then we're like also still in awe of Holmes. Um, but that you don't get that impression with this Watson who's like, oh, 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 wow. Oh, what is happening here? He's, yeah, right. <laughs> he has this kind of Santa Clausy voice, which is fun, but uh, it, it, it doesn't add a whole lot to the story. Yeah, other than just... Uh 
pure entertainment value, which isn't bad. Like there's nothing wrong with entertainment. It just means that, um, you know, you kind of suck kind of the dramatic turn of like a character arc or a complex character or um, an awful lot of character right tension out of um, the story. And you also limit the uh, relationship between Holmes and Watson, which is uh, a very friendly one. Um, but in this one, it's like, it, I don't know. It's so weird. Like, if you actually think about their characters, you're like, why is Holmes hanging out with this guy? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like he's he's just there to amuse Holmes or something. Yeah, this this uh, version is very much predicated on the idea that you know about these two characters already. You don't. Oh, yeah. You don't There's have no to establishing. see. Yeah, you don't have to see an origin story. You just know that they hang out together, and you don't have to um, really explore their friendship or their partnership. Uh, you don't have to explore why they hang out. Like they just they just are together, um, which is like the exact opposite of what we're going to end on today. Um, right. Which I find amusing uh, because both versions are very very entertaining and fun to watch and enjoyable. But they're and and with the same character, the same background stories, but they're entertaining for kind of different reasons. Yeah, but it's one of the things. It's one of the advantages that you have when you tackle a character like Sherlock Holmes, who has uh, such an established legacy that people who have never read a Sherlock Holmes story or even maybe seen a full Sherlock Holmes film or play know who Sherlock Holmes is. They know that his his sidekick is Watson. They probably know that he competes with Lestrade at the uh, police uh, and you know he's got his pipe he's got his signature things these are just things that you can take for granted even if you're starting a brand new um incarnation of the character yeah 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 take your uh cocaine addiction and just run with it <laughs> except not in 1939 this definitely felt a little bit uh you know golden agey it had it had a little bit more shine to it than conan doyle had because conan doyle's sherlock goes to really dark places that uh, you can't really do if you're doing a family fun kind of a version. Yeah, this is kind of the family fun version of Hound of the Baskervilles, which is weird because Hound of the Baskervilles is one of the scariest um, oh, yeah. of the home stories. Like a lot of them are, are mystery stories. Which is why it's the most stories. popular or most well-known probably. Yeah, but this one has a lot of built-in tension, a lot of built-in like fear and a classic setting that um, – uh, is just really cool and scary. And I also, I just really love the idea that somebody, uh, that this story has led to so many different production design departments having to design uh, an English more or figure out where oh, to yeah. shoot an English more. I, I don't know why. I just kind of want to do like a history piece on the incarnations of English moors right now. Um, oh no, there's some great footage in this of just, uh, you know, it's clearly a set, but, um, you know, it's a huge set, lots of mist and fog and, uh, boulders and gravestones yeah. and production all, value, all that good stuff Out that you want from, uh, from, uh, old B horror movie kind of thing. Um, which you could probably tell is like, you know, you've got a huge sound, uh, sound stage and then, you know, you shoot one scene, you move the boulders around, you shoot a different scene, um, but you still, as long as you've got that fog in there, I will keep watching for days. Yep, 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 yep. Heavy use of fog machines, which back in the day were pretty toxic, so I almost feel kind of bad for them. <laughs> well, yeah, there were a lot of bad uh, filmmaking practices back in the day. I mean, they're kind of uh, toxic now, but I mean, it's just unpleasant to breathe nowadays. It won't, yeah. like, give you cancer. But back in the day... At least our modern... 
at least our modern filmmaking lights won't like literally burn your actor's eyes out. Right. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, so speaking of like the family friendly version of this really dark and scary story, there are still elements that uh, they use to keep it in that kind of horror genre. They actually added a seance scene uh, to the movie, which I think you and I both were like, wait a second, did that happen in the book? Yeah, no, I had <laughs> to like, stop and nope. look it up. I was like, this doesn't feel... Is this different? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but also they, they took out some things like, uh, you know, there's a, there's a big subplot part of the story where the hound is, um, like glowing and phosphorescent. Um, and I, it's probably like a production thing, but they, they just kind of like skipped over that. Um, which would have been cool to see. A glowing dog is such a cool visual. I know it would have been cool to see, but it would be also very difficult to do in black and white without just either being utterly cheesy or, or like probably literally not poisoning safe a for dog, the dog with phosphorus. Yeah, like right. Um, but Alex, what did you think about the um, the hound attack scene? Which I think I can say without like giving a lot away. Also, 18th century literature uh, does not <laughs> does not merit spoilers. No, no, right? Like if it's in the public domain. the public domain is the same as the spoiler free domain like yeah 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 Um, but that dog that hound attack was brutal it is it's kind of a scary scene like you can tell they put some effort into into that there must have been some pads clearly a lot of training but it is uh it's pretty vicious especially for like a 1930s film um to get kind of graphic and show that much on screen like this is the period where typically if you were going to do that in a mainstream studio uh hollywood picture you would uh kind of show the dog chasing the person you would show the person running away and then you would cut to somewhere else maybe another person's face watching and while you hear the sounds um but you definitely wouldn't see it happen um right and i do think it is it is really cool it's kind of one of the most exciting parts of this movie and it helps keep it visual uh which is pretty key to this being you know a movie adaptation uh moving from uh visuals that are just created in your head through your interpretation of the writing to visuals that are presented um as is on screen um so just like you were saying there's no getting around that that dog was like attacking him i don't know if they like trained him to play with him in a way that looked like he was attacking him but you know he was that dog was jumping on him and biting at him and all that yeah yeah and you know just like you were saying with the um the uh the disguises being so it's one of the best parts of the visual adaptations you know moment the, the action scenes being part of the visual adaptations is one of the most exciting parts about uh these movies and tvs uh tv shows um yeah these movies and tvs <laughs> these dang <laughs> kids with their movies and tvs get off my lawn i want to listen yeah, to because my some photograph people, some people may have an impression of sherlock holmes as you know he just kind of sits there and he looks he looks through his magnifying glass and he just like spouts out a bunch of facts and observations and stuff but you know corner doyle actually put a lot of effort into making these stories really exciting and if you're following those facts and observations then he pays it off and gives you a really good conclusion um that usually has some element of um 
either just like straight up action excitement or like maybe like international or uh, quote unquote exotic intrigue because he would often pull elements from um, different countries, often involving uh, British imperialism because that's just the time period it was written in, uh, oftentimes right. pulling from America, which uh, we'll talk a little bit about at the end of this episode. Hashtag Mormons. Um, <laughs> hashtag Mormons, hashtag KKK. Like he pulled a lot of American culture into some of these stories. I wonder um, if I just defended Mormons by doing that. By hashtagging them? Yeah. I'm just, I'm I don't just, know why uh, that would be offensive. I don't know. I just kind of <laughs> want to assemble a list. Like I already got the Welsh today. <laughs> How many different uh, groups of people can we offend? Yeah. Any Welsh Mormons out there must be really pissed. Well, if we don't do uh, Holmes justice, then we've also got the British on that list. That's true. That's true. And the ghost of Arthur Conan Doyle, who, let me just point out, <laughs> I find it very funny that um, Conan Doyle sees Watson as his uh, as, as his analog within the, uh, within the Sherlock stories when Conan Doyle is the one coming up with these complex um, mysteries and crimes yeah. and the crazy ways in which um, Sherlock solves them and i know you know like the character is based on a real life professor that he had combined with other detectives that he had but um just looking at the scope of the novels and the short stories and all of the crazy ideas that he had to come up with and the solutions that he had to come up with um to make these stories work is really impressive um and yeah. perhaps one of uh the reasons that it's such a long lasting character one, there's a lot to explore. There's a lot of Sherlock material out there, um, both official and unofficial. And two, it's all really <laughs> smart. I don't. I've I've gone through all of the short stories. I've read all the short stories. I've read all the books. Um, and there's definitely some that are better than others. But I don't think there are any that I read and I just go, "Oh, that was a dumb solution." Um, right. Like they're all incredibly clever and true to the the idea that Holmes is a very. Um, a very smart person, including the one where Holmes is a retiree and he's old and there's no Watson. I find that one very interesting. Um, yeah. And you kind of mentioned this before, Jonathan, but it's it's interesting how much Holmes is in uh, this movie, considering that in the book, Holmes really isn't in it for most of it. A lot of it is um, Watson going in place of Holmes out to... Uh, out to the moors to kind of figure out what's going on and a lot of Watson's adventures. Um, and one of the reasons I, that that sticks with me so clearly is that we had to read this book in school and it was the first Sherlock story I'd ever read. And I was like, there's no Sherlock in this book. <laughs> there's just none. Like we started yeah. on the chapters with Watson and that's like all we read. Um, but clearly if you are making a movie that is based on the draw of the character Sherlock, um, Especially the first one in what may be a series Maybe where you're trying to establish series. actors yeah. and characters. You have to have Sherlock. Um, and clearly, like, it's the, the original book is a very clever telling. Um, it's not, uh, it probably benefits from the fact that Sherlock isn't in it and that the chapters with Watson alone are the most interesting chapters um, for most of the book. Um, but... Yes. It kind of yeah, when if you're reading it, it kind of lets you get all the information through Watson and you get to start to be Holmes and try and figure it out. But you don't get that same effect in a movie necessarily. No, 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 no. Not when everything is presented to you as is 
on screen. And for that to work, you have to have Sherlock present, um, right. which is what they did. And so, yeah, you change stuff to make it work depending on the medium. Um, and we, we've talked about this before with adaptations, and this is a great example. Um, and it kind of carried over and became a thing where, uh, yes, Holmes disappears for part of the telling of The Hound of the Baskervilles, but he typically always comes back uh, for a larger part of the visual adaptation than he is in the original novel. <laughs> Again, you got to have him. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got that, you've got his, uh, his vagabond character. So you get to see a little bit of him before he officially comes back. And if you're familiar with the character of Holmes, you're like, hmm, that guy seems fishy. Yeah. Yeah, I bet if he stood up straight, he would be maybe exactly Holmes's height. <laughs> so yeah, through those uh, the amount of time that Holmes is absent from the story, we're following Watson, and Watson gets to sort of be the narrator because he's writing notes back to Holmes uh, in the great uh, old-timey movie way where he writes like one sentence with words that are huge so that we can be sure to read them. Yeah, um, except it's cursive, and I always suck at reading movie cursive. <laughs> it's interesting because those... They're never read aloud, but they basically act as like a narration. Like, today I met uh, so-and-so, and they seem suspicious. And we're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> so Watson actually gets to kind of fulfill the role that he has in the books of being our narrator and our guide through the, uh, through the story. Yeah. Um, but Which the in interesting thing, when you're taking uh, a film adaptation of Sherlock Holmes, is that all the book adaptations are first person from Watson's point of view. So we are stuck knowing what Watson knows and what people tell Watson or what he has learned after the fact. In a film, you're generally in a third-person omniscient point of view where you get to see a lot of things and you cut back and forth between the bad guy and the um, and Holmes and Watson. And so there are interesting ways that each of these kind of tackle that uh, freedom that the film format gives them when they're covering such a limited perspective in the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in, in case uh, anybody out there isn't aware, the original stories are pretty much all told, with a few exceptions, from Watson's point of view. Um, so he, he is very much our lens into that world. Uh, so yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting way that it's done in an uh, audiovisual film adaptation version. Uh, and one of the things I find interesting, because there's a lot of this information... Uh, in Sherlock Holmes stories is how flashbacks are handled and how going back to reveal how a crime was done was handled uh, back in the day with some of the original crime stories that were coming out. Yeah, these detective stories have like an inherent Rashomon effect. So that uh, the way that you handle that going back and telling, like just listening to someone tell something that happened before is really interesting because sometimes those are very long digressions and you have to keep it interesting. Yeah, yeah, and this one, the the flashbacks here are very, uh, very golden age Hollywood, let's say. They're very stylized. They're very ornate. There's a lot of production value put into them as well as the regular Sherlock story. Um, they're very big, and a lot of them have, was it this one or the Sign of Four that has the overlay on it? Like, it has, like, a script overlay when they're reading a This book. one has the overlay. Uh, Sign of Four has a, just really long fades on the creepy guy. Yeah, 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 and... Um, you know, that flashback idea, going back to how the crime actually happened, or uh, in this case, the original his historical crime actually happened, um, it's just inherent 
and how these crime stories are told. And it's common even nowadays. I mean, you have a crime procedural um, like CSI or NCIS or something like that. Like they go back and tell you how uh, they show you typically how crimes happened to a certain extent so that you know. Um, in fact, you know, the original uh, study in Scarlet, the first Sherlock Holmes novel, like the ha- the second half of it. The entire second half. <laughs> the, yeah. 50% of the book is going back to explain the original crime that kicked off all of these things. And uh, it's important to note with that, that this is the first Sherlock Holmes story ever. So, you know, Conan Doyle wasn't like, oh, Sherlock's a big star. There's going to be this ravenous fan base. Like he was just out to tell an interesting story. And that's how he chose to right. do it. Um, but, but yes, <laughs> yes. Flashbacks are an inherent part of, uh, crime mysteries because that's the answer to, uh, to what we're trying to find out. It's interesting cause they, they use that overlay effect, uh, in this film and I watched a, a Raymond Massey version. Um, Raymond Massey played, uh, Jonathan in, Arsenic and Old Lace for anyone who's been following the podcast since then. Uh, and I think we're going to see him next next time, too. But the uh, in the Speckled Band from 1931. So this is even eight years before this film. And we're talking like, you know, this is probably still like right at the beginning of just sound in film. Um, but they do that overlay effect where um, the girl who's telling the story is talking about these different characters and we see their faces uh, kind of like overlay um, on top of the footage of her talking about it. Um, so it seems to be just like a pretty common thing uh, in the Sherlock universe to do that kind of a thing. But also I think uh, people at this really early stage of film just really liked to play with effects like that whenever they got a chance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the story is pretty much set. So all of the fun in doing one of these um, adaptations is seeing uh, how you can interpret it visually. So yeah, it, and it makes it sense gives that it there's a so style, much visual play. Yeah, <laughs> which we we are still uh, seeing. Um, you know, the style of Sherlock Holmes being tested and pushed, uh, as we will see in our last uh, last movie episode thing yeah and maybe most importantly finding a way to connect to all of the previous retellings but also stand out as its own thing you know finding yeah because you can't get away like anyone who's going to do sherlock holmes now whether it's ian mckellen or robert darney jr or uh uh you know blubberwell chesterfield (laughs) thank you um you know, you you have a long line of shoes that you're filling and uh, you've got to do something different because there is one Sherlock Holmes, but there are so many different facets to her personality that it's so interesting to see which aspects each of these uh, leading men pick to highlight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, lots of different ways to do it. Uh, and it's not like it's going to stop anytime soon. This will be going on forever. Um, so, yeah, strap in, explore the past Sherlock Holmes because they're <laughs> great, and get excited for the future Sherlock Holmes. And enjoy whenever they get around to making another season with But a White Boy Can't Beckon. <laughs> All right, Jason, tell us about uh, the next film that we're going to be talking about. Thanks, Jonathan. Now we're going to be moving on to The Sign of Four from 1987. Mary Morstan approaches Sherlock Holmes to help her investigate the disappearance of her father after she receives a mysterious invitation. 
Together, they meet a man named Thaddeus Sholto, who tells them that his and Mary's father had acquired a treasure in the past, but Sholto's father had stolen it from the other partners and hidden it away. Sholto's brother Bartholomew has recently found the treasure, and Thaddeus wants to split it with Mary. But when they arrive at the estate, they find that Bartholomew is dead, and the treasure had been stolen. Holmes and Watson are now racing the local police force to find the killer and recover the treasure. And now back to you. Thanks, Jason. So, this film stars Jeremy Brett. And to a lot of people, Jeremy Brett is, uh, like, the definitive Sherlock Holmes uh, portrayal. In one sense, because he spent... uh, Oh, and I should say, by the way, that we have seen Jeremy Brett not too long ago on the podcast as he played uh, Freddy from uh, My Fair Lady. um, Oh. That has a crush on Eliza Doolittle. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> um, but uh, for one thing, he spent a lot of time researching the character and he like put a lot of uh, time and uh, talent into making sure that this was a very consistent um, character to that of the book. And also the fact that he, they, they created uh, seven seasons of this show and covered a whole lot of the actual stories from Arthur Conan Doyle. So if you're looking for like a, um, a, a visible representation of like the canon of Sherlock Holmes, you're going to end up looking at Jeremy Brett at some point or another because they just covered so much of it and put a lot of effort into making sure that um, it was faithful, not taking a lot of liberties, but just putting Sherlock Holmes on screen. And I think Jeremy Brett does a great job. One of my favorite things about him is uh, he he has the thing that Sherlock Holmes does, which is uh, he doesn't care until there's something that he can't figure out, and then he cares a lot about the case. And he will just uh, go after it with all of his might until he solves it, and then he doesn't care about anything again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's got, there's so much that you can see about what he's thinking in his facial expressions. Jeremy Brett's facial expressions are wonderful. There's a point where uh, Watson picks up um, the poisonous dart that killed Bartholomew. And, you know, he's he's just looking at it, examining it. He wants to see how sharp it is. And Holmes is like, uh, don't do that. That's poisoned. And when he says the word poison, he smiles. He has this little, uh, like, I don't know, psychotic smile at the word poison that I thought was just so brilliant because he's so excited about uh, what's going on and the fact that he doesn't exactly know what happened yet. Um, and I don't know, I just thought it was it was delightful to watch him go through this film. Yeah, no, he's a much more complex incarnation of the character than yeah. uh, Basil uh, Rathbone's incarnation. And again, this is not knocking Basil Rathbone's incarnation. Those movies were trying to do something very different than mm-hmm. th- this version is. And this version is trying to show um, a much more serious version of the character um, who's much more uh, and we're we're kind of getting to this point. We're exploring why he is um, interested to certain cases. And what about those cases make it interesting to this uh, character who has achieved almost uh, superhero status um, right. in popular mythology. Um, so to see a much more uh, intense version of the character um, is quite a turn, uh, quite unique compared to the uh, the uh, Rathbone version and uh, very interesting. And I, I might say a little more true to the book than uh, uh, to the books yeah. and the short stories than the 1939 version. 
um, which is interesting. And they definitely had a lot of room to explore that and get really good at doing it over the course of seven seasons of TV. Um, I should also say this one had a huge impact on the baseball mitt Cogglesworth version. Um, when I, so when I watched, uh, this film, uh, I was, we start off pretty much either right away or the first or second scene is in, uh, the Baker street house. Um, and it looks almost exactly like the, uh, the, ver- the Baker street house in the Sherlock TV show, the modern day one. Um, yeah. The geography is almost identical. Yeah. If some of the details aren't the architecture, the layout, the way Sherlock treats Mrs. Hudson, um, even <laughs> yeah. like the way the windows are done, it's just a lot brighter. There's a lot more light coming in there. Um, there's an extra window. The, if you yeah, the that. walls, the walls are white. Um, but yeah, yeah, and the way Jeremy Brett moves is much closer to the Buttercup Candlestick version. Um, and the, obviously, timeline-wise, what I'm saying is the modern day version pulled a lot from this version. Yeah, because this is, this was such a popular modern incarnation. This is probably like the definitive version of Sherlock until. Yeah. Um, modern Sherlock trotted along and these are both British productions so you know they're they're running in this I wouldn't be surprised if if Sherlock pulled like actual uh you know set pieces and stuff from the Granada television version that uh Jeremy (laughs) Brett did they're like oh hey do you guys have any of that left in storage (laughs) yeah let's use that I mean you know it wouldn't surprise me even down to like the weird experiment on the table like there's just yeah. there's I'm sure if I actually sat down and watched the TV show there would be a weird experiment on the table in each episode. Um, there's it just so happens that this is only one movie so there's only time for one experiment. Um, but yeah yeah very down to that and uh, and the Watson is much much more complex than the Watson we oh, yeah. see in the 1939 version. And this is a great story uh, to talk about Watson in because The Sign of Four is a story where uh, he meets and falls in love with uh, Mary Morstan, who is the client when she comes in. Um, And uh, so we get to see in this film uh, Watson the romantic. We get to see a more romantic side. And we also get to see uh, him just, you know, using his skills um, and what he brings to the table in these stories, you know, he examines the body and, you know, says what he died of and what kind of poison it was and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he helps, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes in, um, the chase scene, you know, cause we still remember he's a military man. Uh, and so, and there is a chase scene. It's awesome. It's a boat chase. Uh, yeah, the and- <laughs> boat chase is so good. <laughs> the boat chase is awesome. I mean, the boat chase um, in the in the novel is one of the highlights of the entire Sherlock Holmes series, and yeah. it, I was so excited to see it in uh, in a visual format, and it, it delivered. It was pretty pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, also, the the highlight of that book for me is when they find the body um, of the brother Bar- Bartholomew, uh, and that he. Conan Doyle describes it as taking place at night uh, and they look through the keyhole and see moonlight streaming in and this guy's face frozen in this uh, horrific smile. Unfortunately, uh, one of the things we have to consider is that this is a television production. So even though this is um, a feature length uh, version, there were there were, I think, two of them. They did Sign of Four and Hound of the Baskervilles that got uh, a feature length adaptation. But 
they still are working on a TV budget. They don't have a huge budget and oh, yeah. TV did not TV have crew. the budget that it does today. Um, so they shot it in the daylight and it's still a very striking and creepy scene. But, uh, you know, I feel like and I, I feel like this crew like had the skill, like they knew what they were doing because they do um, uh, like rack focuses and stuff like this that uh, you pointed out um, in our notes this week kind of translate to a more dramatic effect into Sherlock. Um, but I feel like they had all that. I just don't think they had the budget to do what they, they probably put all their budget, honestly, into the nighttime boat chase. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> which like, I'm fine with. Seriously, from a production standpoint, That's expensive. a boat chase is one of the hardest scenes you could possibly shoot. Water. Yeah. And chase, at night, everything at night, at night is expensive. Yeah. No, I mean, imagine trying to light those boats, man. Uh. That's, that was not easy. <laughs> Um, but they pulled it off. They pulled it off very, very well. It's very worthwhile. Yeah. And you're right. A lot of the, even down to the cinematography, the rack focuses and stuff gets pulled into the the later version of Sherlock. Most I spent most of my time this week just thinking about how close this and the um, <laughs> Bumble Shack cover girl version of Sherlock are. Yeah, but also uh, Watson is more developed and the relationship between uh, Sherlock and Watson is much more developed. You can see the friendship a lot more like you can see the fact that, you know, as on a human level, they're, you know, they're equal. And even if intellectually they have different things or bring different things to the game, because one of the things that Watson does, even if he can't make all the connections that Holmes does, but he'll sometimes just say something uh you know, some thought that crosses his mind and then that sparks something in Holmes's mind. He's like, oh, I didn't see it that way before. And that helps him like kickstart uh, one of his deductions. And so we get to see that respect that Holmes has for Watson um, that, you know, you don't really get whenever Watson is just kind of like the uh, the the clown guy following around. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a reason Sherlock is friends with Watson. Yeah, like it's very evident why Watson hangs out with Sherlock, and it's the same reason that any of us would want to hang out with Sherlock. But um, but there are very good reasons. Slightly that less keeps... obvious in Sherlock the show, yeah. he, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, he's it's but, much more evident that he's an asshole in, in, yeah. in Sherlock. But that's okay because you can see love the warmth... buffalo carrot stick. <laughs> but you can see the warmth in this adaptation. Um, there was there was some moment where. They, uh, I think it was towards the end and they like discovered something and they just like had this laugh together. And I thought it was such a nice moment between them um, that we that you don't see a lot in really either. You get you get some of it in Sherlock, but we'll talk about where the the characters come from uh, are coming from and going to in that in that show. But the, the other thing to mention, like since this is uh a television show and this is I think this is coming out like after the second season or something so we're well established um, you know we not only don't have to establish Sherlock because we know who Sherlock as a character is but there's no need for any kind of exposition of this show this uh, the style of this show the uh, portrayals by these two actors um, you know, the the show just like starts really quickly into this and it almost feels uh, abbreviated at the beginning. You know, we're seeing the titles coming on as uh, Mary comes into the apartment and they just kind of like skip out a lot of little um, 
chatty moments that you might get in something that's trying to establish the dynamic between these characters and stuff. So I thought that was interesting that, you know, there's practically no exposition. We just we're, we're seeing Watson and Holmes and then we jump into the mystery. Exactly. Yeah. No, it, it, is, it is nice. And, you know, that's the way it functions in the book, too. Um, right. Which makes us feel like an even more faithful adaptation is that, um, yes, we do get like the a study in Scarlet is an origin story. Um, as well as a Mormon story. Um, it is, it introduces us to the characters and explains what's up with them. But, uh, but every other book, every other short story, it works on the assumption that this is a pre-established duo. This is how, uh, how it works. And this is how they adventure. Um, and there are one or two stories that have, uh, a bit of a hint at a character arc or development or that. Yes. The lives do go on, you know, uh, Sherlock, dies in quotes and comes back yeah. um there's a point where obviously in this one yeah after uh, this watson one gets married <laughs> watson yeah watson gets married and moves out and then every story after this is about uh it has to start off with somehow watson and uh holmes hanging out again for some right. reason like they always have to explain why uh two grown men might see each other other than uh hey they're friends um and then, uh, of course, later on, there's one or two stories that are uh, very situational, like the ones where Holmes is uh, retired and living by himself on, like, the beach, um, which I think is actually the basis for uh, a lot of a lot of that drove the story for Mr. Holmes. Um, yeah, the Ian McKellen version. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, Came out a couple years there's, ago. there's a special version that I'm – is of dubious canonical timeline validity um, that came out around the time of the first world war uh, when uh, Watson and Holmes reunite to become super spies. That's kind of an odd one, but it's there. Was that one of the Rathbone adaptations? No, I feel like there was a Rathbone adaptation with Nazis or something. Mm, I think there was, but I don't think it had anything to do with this because uh, I mean, world war one, there wouldn't have been Nazis. I'll figure out more and I'll, I'll, I'll like, I'll, I don't know. I'll tweet out the, the unique ones, the really like oddball yeah. Sherlock Holmes stories. But the point is, you're right. This, this as a series, and this is why we have two of our, uh, quote movies. Um, why we're breaking our rule this week, um, for mostly trying to only cover movies on this podcast is that this, this character is built as an episodic character. You know, that's just, where he comes from, he comes from a series of stories in the newspaper that you would read one week after the next. And so it just lends itself to a uh, episodic television uh, in our current um, media structure, uh, a television portrayal. And so, so yeah, it does. It makes it feel much more like the book because you can just kind of throw us into a story and we don't have to have any, any uh, backstory because just everyone knows who these people are. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, which has led to like their continuing popularity. Like it's a self-perpetuating fandom uh, machine. Like the people, and I. That's kind of a weird, nice connecting thought, isn't it? Like the crazy Tumblr person who, um, cra- I mean, crazy in a good way, um, <laughs> who made the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Or sorry, I said it correctly. That's weird. Uh oh. <laughs> wow, party foul. Um, the, the wonderfully crazy Tumblr person who made the Benadryl cutting snatch name generator, um, is, has a lot in common with the ravenous fan 
who protested the killing off of Sherlock Holmes at in, in the 1890s. Like, yeah, it's, it's and I won't even get into nice all the, the Sherlock shipping fans. Uh, no, we don't need to go there. <laughs> um, but I think this is a good time to get into Sherlock. So Jason, uh, set us up. Thanks, Jonathan. And our final film, A Study in Pink from 2010. Retired army doctor John Watson finds an odd new flatmate in one Sherlock Holmes, self-declared consulting detective. As they begin to live together and learn each other's quirks, Watson is caught up in Holmes' latest case, investigating a series of suicides across London, which the London police are unable to account for. And now back to the filmlings. Thanks, Jason. So in this film, we get to see the beginning of Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, uh, in the, and their relationship as Sherlock Holmes and uh, John Watson. So, like we've been saying, that in a lot of respects, you you don't need to establish uh, Sherlock Holmes unless you are going to drastically alter the style and the setting from any other adaptation that has come before, which is what happens uh, here in this one. So there is what exposition that is needed. <laughs> right. So there's there's expect there's exposition that is needed to an extent you know you have to uh temper the audience's expectations because there is such a clear-cut um image of sherlock holmes in so much of the public's mind that doing something like this is a really big risk and to see what the reaction is obviously the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive wow Um, nice emphasis on the h there and overwhelming overwhelming thank you i uh you know after 67 episodes i thought i should start enunciating a little bit man Um, i don't think i'm ever gonna get there (laughs) um so yeah so we know who sherlock holmes is but we don't know who sherlock holmes is in 21st century london uh and so stephen moffat and the gang um billy including mark gaddis who makes an appearance in the show um they have to show us how we can keep the same personality traits and character traits, but also put them in a modern setting. Yeah, you're right, Jonathan. And I think uh, we should kind of establish this now because they established this very early in um, this show. Uh, This is is a show that is less about the mysteries, although that is very important. Um, It's very much about the relationships in the show and the the, the central friendship of Watson and Holmes, which has become more of the star of the show than Booty Trap Charmander by himself has. Um, it, it's it's kind of about that entire development, and that's be, that's been a part of the past incarnations, but in this one, that that very much is central. Um, yeah. Seeing how they how they become friends, seeing how they stay friends, and seeing how their friendship is affected um, by these different events, by like the Moriarty's thrown in their way, um, and and exploring that because as we've said before, there's a reason these two hang out together. Like they they make each other better people when they're around each other. Um, it just certainly so, certainly in this version, like, Sherlock is his best version when. Um, when Watson is around. Otherwise, he's just like a, a sociopath. Sorry, highly functioning sociopath. <laughs> that is a direct quote. Yeah. But given that as a goal, 
the being the first episode, we have to start them both in really dark places. So we see uh, the most uh, pompous and inconsiderate version of Sherlock Holmes out of these three. Um, even the pretty faithful Jeremy Brett adaptation has, um, you know, a lot more warmth and compassion, whereas Benedict Cumberbatch is very uh, cold to other people and um, not very uh, empathetic towards people. And we start him there so that we can grow him later on throughout the show. And we start Martin Freeman off at a place where uh, – He's got this like self-pitying streak going on. He's yeah, got, geez, Watson's you know, <laughs> in a dark spot at the start of this. I mean, the very first uh, frame of this is war footage or some kind of like mocked up war footage um, of the Afghan war, um, Followed which by is therapy. a nice <laughs> which is a nice nod because Watson and the stories actually did come from an Afghan war, just a different one in a different century. <laughs> Was it the Afghan um, war? Was it the Boer war? Oh, now I got to check. So Watson starts out in this place where uh, he's been shot. He's got this limp that we come to find out is mostly psychosomatic. Um, so he's really like feeling sorry for himself about being, uh, I guess, discharged from the army. Because part of his character arc throughout this is realizing that uh, he's not sad because he's been shot and uh, is out of uh, is having Damn, to get back right. into. I thought so. I thought so. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, that was a pretty appropriate move for the Sherlock producers. Um, but his journey is having to, um, realize that what he wanted was that excitement and that the, that kind of war adrenaline, uh, was his drug. So, you know, he kind of becomes a little bit more. Uh, parallel to Holmes in that regard because uh, throughout the character of Holmes you realize that if Holmes is not on a case and not getting that excitement he reverts to drugs which I meant to bring up in the last movie because we could actually show some of his drug dependency in uh, in the 80s on television it wasn't very explicit but it was uh, much more obvious than in um, our 1939 movie Um, drug use (laughs) <laughs> and here in a study in pink um uh, actually throughout the whole sherlock show the it, it gets much more explicit towards uh the later seasons um but there, it's kind of hinted at in this movie and we get the nicotine patches which is fun it's like oh he always has a pipe and now he has nicotine patches um there are there are a lot of really fun things where they take like direct quotes from the stories and twist them into um into modern adaptations. So, for example, in A Study in Scarlet, uh, Holmes calls his brain um, a little attic where he stores information, and in the modern version, they call it a hard drive. Um, so, I thought it was anyways, like a mind palace. That's different. That's his memorization technique. Mm, gotcha. Gotcha. My bad. So, yeah, so we're establishing all of these little things and little quirks, and um, the other big factor of this show is that um there the goal of sherlock is not sherlock the show is not to be faithful adaptations of specific uh conan doyle stories so a study in pink the title refers quite blatantly to a study in scarlet which is the first novel uh by conan doyle of sherlock holmes and um the story generally follows uh the 
trajectory of the beginning of that book. Um, but then it takes a new turn on the ending in order to set up uh, an arcing narrative with Moriarty and stuff. Uh, and then the later episodes will actually um, not follow a single specific uh, home story, but will mash up a lot of them uh, into one in order to create, again, just to follow this overarching Moriarty narrative. Um, so, you know, that's something that we're, we're not looking for. We're not looking for, oh, when are the Mormons going to show up um, <laughs> like they did in the book? We're like, okay, so how are they going to change this? How are they going to uh, keep this interesting and fresh? Yeah, yeah. It turns out, again, emphasis on uh, inner character relationships, uh, the relationship between Moriarty and... Um, and Holmes, which is mostly unexplored in a lot of the original, um, original work, a lot of the original novels and short stories, uh, well, it becomes incredibly to, important. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, granted that Moriarty was literally just a cop out device to get rid of Holmes uh, in the stories, and then after he came back, he was like, "Oh yeah, I built Moriarty up to be this really important guy, so I guess I should mention him a couple more times." Yeah, 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 yeah. and of course, like, um. That, that's but kind Moriarty's of the origin story of why Moriarty's a character, but I like that this version takes that opportunity to go back and be like, okay, they are arch nemesis uh, nemesi? Nemesis? <laughs> nemesis? I genuinely don't know how to say that. Um, you know, let's explore how they became that. Let's explore this duel between the two because that'll be interesting. Um and of course they do that over the course of multiple seasons and they do it really cleverly in this one because you know Moriarty is one of those indelible aspects of Sherlock Holmes you know you can't have Robin Hood without the Sheriff of Nottingham you can't have Sherlock Holmes without Moriarty somewhere um and so even though he was kind of this cop-out technique he has taken on a life of his own and become integral to any really any adaptation uh and here they play us. They play the audience uh, on that because they do this huge setup um, and reveal for who we think is going to be Moriarty, and it turns out to be Mycroft, uh, Sherlock Holmes's brother, um, who's an actual character from the books. But uh, you know, they're just so dramatic about it. They they like practically kidnap uh, um, Watson and take him into this creepy parking garage and all of this stuff, but. Again, we're making um, exposition here. We are playing on the idea of exposition because we know that this this episode is setting up a lot of things that are going to be paid off in the future, um, and we're being misdirected because of uh, that expectation. Yeah, yeah, and of course, um, I mean, this incarnation of Sherlock Holmes has turned into such a widespread, popular, influential... Um, uh, piece of media that's hard to imagine that this isn't going to have a major effect on future tellings of the story because of course there will be it will it'll just keep going right. so whatever the next major well, we major won't mention elementary but <laughs> no no because that no just no stop speaking of americans ruining things can we cut that out of the podcast <laughs> um gee i hate that show um <laughs> Did you actually watch it? I never actually watched any of it. Yes, yes, I do. Oh no! I, that why well, I did. I did. It's not voluntary. It's just it. Uh, I don't know. 
Something about happen. it irks me deeply. Um, and for anyone wondering, it's not Lucy Liu. Lucy Liu is great. It has nothing to do with that. It's just the, it's just the uh, whole needless, idea. The needless Americanization of a story that does not need to be Americanized, um, which is you know part of the history of American media. I mean, even the Basil <laughs> Rathbone version, which happened in America, was right. Is so British. Um, anyway, like British had their imperialization, and America has like imperialization of me- media. Yeah, no, that uh, yeah, books about it, man. <laughs> go, go to yeah, probably a section in your local library. Um, so, yes, of course, uh, we we've talked about the relationships. Uh, we should talk about style um, because this this show so does not much style. shy away from doing extreme visual stylizations, whether it be almost all of the text and emails being exchanged showing up on screen. Um, typically like anchored to something um, to uh, transitions, uh, really just funky the transition. transitions that are like yeah. really clever graphical uh, transitions that are kind of out of the ordinary. Well, definitely out of the ordinary, but very clever. And yeah, I, they, I don't know if they have any effect outside of just setting the tone really well for this snappy, upbeat, stylistic show. That's just going to keep moving and keep you guessing. Um, but they're there and they're, they're a key part of making this incarnation distinct from uh, some of the past ones. Yeah, because just like just the look of it is complete. Like you said, like even if some of the geography and some of the set design and stuff is similar, if you turn on uh, a frame of Sherlock, you're not going to confuse it with <laughs> with any other incarnation of, uh, of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, right. Um, You'll be lucky if you get a point where he's wearing a deerstalker. Which becomes a joke in the show. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so yeah, like the style almost becomes a character. Uh, but it keeps you it keeps you interested in... Um, and that, like I was saying before, sometimes the driest part is uh, gathering the evidence and finding the next clue and stuff, which uh, is cool if you're into it, but also can just be kind of... Uh, talky and boring if you're if you're not totally invested but when you've got um speed ramping and you've got overlaid graphics and you've got uh benedict cumberbatch's curly hair going all over the place and he's like jumping up and down and he's so energetic in this uh adaptation which is great because the character of sherlock holmes is uh very energetic and athletic um which i think um, and hyped up on cocaine well, that's uh, not when he's working, though. Um, but I think we actually have to give some credit to Robert Downey Jr. and um, uh, Guy Ritchie for bringing a little bit of energy into the character of Sherlock Holmes because some of the other adaptations like uh, uh, Basil Rathbone and stuff, you know, they were kind of, uh, you know, not completely static, but they were not... Um, quite as active as the actual character of Sherlock Holmes was. He was a boxer. He was um, uh, a judo uh, master, which is actually part of the part of the explanation given when he uh, comes back after the Reichenbach fall. Um, so yeah, Guy Ritchie he, takes he that... He ran a lot in the, in, <laughs> in the stories. Yeah, so Guy Ritchie takes that like to 11 with uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s action hero. Action hero. Uh, and I think Benedict Cumberbatch does a good job of balancing that. And he also does a good job of bringing Jeremy Brett's 
uh, use of facial expressions and um, just being able to read his thought process in his face and um, being able to tell when he's completely disinterested in what you're talking about and when he's like completely in tune with uh, how this is helping the case. Um, acting. Acting. It's great. Um, we don't talk about actors enough, so I think this is really good uh, to see three different actors taking on the same character who has a canon that's all the same personality, but they're, like I said, emphasizing different aspects of it. Yeah, um, yeah they all do it very well, but just very differently. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, the score for this version of Sherlock is brilliant. Like, just, yeah. again, another stylistic technical aspect of the show that just makes the pulls together this whole new upbeat tone uh, for Sherlock compared to some of the past incarnations that makes it and very it's distinct. thematically very popular. Uh, relevant because you've got that plucky violin, uh, which is what Sherlock Holmes does when he's thinking. You know, one of the things that I thought um, uh, this week, and if we haven't offended um, the British uh, Sherlock Holmes fans yet, uh, I will when I say that I was realizing that the violin is basically Sherlock Holmes's fidget spinner. You know, it kind of is. Kind of is. <laughs> he picks do it up something with your hands while you think. Yeah, he and can either, play it, but he doesn't play it very well doing when he's cocaine. Thinking. Yeah. What's those? worse for the soul, Jonathan? Cocaine or fidget spinners? Ooh. Tune in next know. time. <laughs> Maybe I'll run a poll. We'll see. So again, uh, and we we were talking about the the individual characters of Sherlock Holmes and John Watson, but we do get to see their relationship here, and it starts off. Um, a little rough because again we're starting them both in very dark places but they have that common uh that common interest in the need for the hunt and the adrenaline uh and getting into it and just having that rush and so they they start bonding over that even though they haven't totally figured each other out yet if one can ever figure out the character of Sherlock Holmes um but there's also that friendship there again Martin Freeman's John Watson brings a lot to the table. He brings, uh, again, he's he's not, he's athletic as uh, Sherlock Holmes, so they're running through the streets together, um, which the Watson in Sherlock Holmes' story was fairly athletic as well. Um, and uh, he's got his medical expertise, he's got his war expertise. So, you know, again, we're, we're getting those well-developed characters, that well-developed relationship of someone who brings something to the table, even if, you know, Holmes is going to bring it all the way to the conclusion, uh, by the end. But Watson is an integral part of the process. (laughs) Holmes literally goes back. He, he leaves to go out on his case and he literally comes back to get Watson. And that's how they start off on those, on these adventures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's established that for whatever reason, like, they are important to each other. And then we explore that reason for the rest of the show, yeah. which is interesting. And they've gotten deeper and deeper into that as the show's gone on. Like, by the end of this latest season, like, it's it's gotten very, their relationship, their friendship has become very important. Um, also, before we slip into overall notes, uh, I just wanted to say uh, Bunsen Burner Cockatiel. All right, now into overall notes. All right, so yeah, so let's just get into it with uh, Alex. Who do you prefer out of the three adaptations that we watched today? Which one do you think uh, resonates with you more? Um, you know, we both have a good knowledge of the actual canonical stories and um, these three actors and portrayals. So. Get, what what are yeah. your impressions? Yeah, and so this this doesn't have anything to do with who I think is the best Holmes because I think that's 
kind of an irrelevant question. Um, it's a very baity question. I can see why somebody might be interested in the answer to it, but uh, I think it's it's kind of irrelevant um, because again, these are all actors trying to do different things with the character. Um, and so why why you know Basil Rathbone's fun, uh, Jeremy Brett is intense and interesting, but I think it's got to come back to uh, stick Cumberbund for me. Um, just be, it, for no other reason than like he is a Sherlock designed for uh, for the modern times in which I live. I find that intensely relatable. I like characters with a lot of depth who uh, are that depth that, where that depth is explored in a story. And a lot of the modern Sherlock television show is about exploring that depth in Sherlock and making him more than just like a weird superhuman who solves crimes. Um, so for that reason, you know, bakery copper wire, I think takes it for me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, personally, I'm actually going to go with Jeremy Brett, uh, just cause I'm a sucker I knew for, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm a sucker for literary accuracy. I think I, uh, Sherlock, the show is much more exciting and more fun to watch. But as far as portrayals of Sherlock Holmes, I'm, I'm going to have to go with Jeremy Brett. I just love uh, the way he's able to take it in its setting and uh, make it so interesting and just bring it to life, uh, basically like right off the page. That's an intensely satchel answer. <laughs> and I think we've we've talked about this deeply over the course of uh, this podcast, but maybe we should bring it back to this. Why is Holmes so popular? Um, why is he the most portrayed character ever? Yeah, it's interesting, you know... Um, I mean, just taking it back to Conan Doyle's stories, you would think that as Conan Doyle got tired of writing the stories, that people would get tired of reading them. Because, uh, you know, at some point, uh, not to say they all have a very interesting aspect to them, but to some extent, they become variations on a theme. Uh, and yet, it's, I, I think part of it is is the point of view. It's being able to tag along with someone who's so good at what they do, um, and is just real so far superior to other people. I think that's also uh, a draw of superhero movies. Like you said, there's almost a superhuman quality of Sherlock Holmes, um, and it's just it's it's kind of this fantasy of like, man, you know, these things are so obvious if you if you're only looking for them, uh, and so it just it it draws us to them because. Like, you know, we could do that <laughs> in our own lives. You know, if the more observant that we are, the closer that we get to Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but as Sherlock Holmes says in one of the stories, there are there are so many obvious things that nobody by any chance ever notices. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, it, it, the, the entire setup of the character at a basis is, you know, perfect for... Uh, interesting he follows like all of the rules that we've come to to learn know and rely on to make a character interesting make him extraordinary but relatable give him a foil that is our entry point to viewing a character that uh makes him um reachable as an audience and then of course you know a, a key to popularity is repeatability and being able oh, to, yeah. you know, have this story and have different incarnations of the story over and over and over and over and over and not get tired of it uh, leads to, you know, that's when you know you've got something. And clearly there is something special about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, yeah. 
And you're right that, again, like we've been talking about, that inherent repeatability. Like if you can get a Sherlock Holmes uh, portrayal, an actor who can play Sherlock Holmes in a way that people like, then, you know, you're just sitting on a jackpot of content that you will not run out of for a very long time, even if you only stick to the true canon. And then if you're going off script like Sherlock, you know, who knows? You could go forever, really, with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just don't make seasons very often. Right. Uh, and I think they're not totally planning on making another one right now, which is sad. Who knows? Please make another one, Beezable Cottage Cheese. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone that's involved in the show said that they would love to keep doing it, but they're just all so busy right now. Uh, so maybe in like 30 years, they will all get back together for a reunion tour and uh, we'll get to see uh, Benedict Cumberbatch do, as a yeah. keeper. Do like a really old one. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, but yeah, and you know, we can't forget about Watson. I think Watson, we've been talking about him a lot, but he's, he's an integral character. He's really important um, to Sherlock Holmes as he is, you know, uh, and it, we've seen different versions. We've seen uh, Watson, the bumbler who just kind of like, uh, you know, goes around and, you know, doesn't really notice anything and is just astonished at everything. Uh, and we've seen the romantic who has, input into the case with uh with Holmes and uh he has a little bit more of a human side than Holmes because he uh he falls in love with uh, a woman and starts to have that family life and we've seen Watson the soldier in uh in Sherlock who is a little uh more hardened and uh has to uh break out of his shell a little bit and um so you know what no matter how he's portrayed he has uh, a real bearing on Sherlock Holmes and how approachable the Sherlock Holmes portrayal is to us. Because again, Watson is inherently our access to Sherlock Holmes. Um, so I think that that's really interesting. Having a character that, uh, you know, the sec uh, for lack of a better word, the secondary character is almost just as integral as the main character um, to be just as interesting. Yes. All right. Uh, any last thoughts, man? Uh, I don't think so. I think we've, <laughs> we've about covered it. Um, I'm glad we got to do this cause this is, I, I know we both have uh, a real love for Sherlock Holmes and it's really interesting to see, uh, how he keeps coming up in, in different and interesting ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like he's going away. We're going to be nope. stuck with him forever in a good way, hopefully. So, uh, future content makers, uh, do well with Holmes because, uh, we like our home con homes content good, and we want to keep it good moving forward, please. Elementary. Yes, that was an awkward plea. <laughs> also, real quick, I don't know if we squeaked in this fun fact, although I did tweet it out, but elementary, my yeah. dear Watson, never said in the books, said in a movie. Interesting. And then it was repeated a couple times in different movies, and then it started to become really popular when some of the big incarnations like Basil Rathbone picked it up and... It just ran with it. Um, only he only said like elementary. That was it in like one time in the entirety of the, uh, huh. the books and uh, short stories. Now I know. Yeah, now you know. I feel like that gets said a lot when somebody listens to our podcast. Like, huh? <laughs> now I know. That's the goal of the podcast. So I'm glad. That's that's our that that should be like our our subtitle, the film links. Huh, now you know. <laughs> All right, well, what are we going to know about next time? 
Well, next time we're going to talk about the productions of the archers, um, which is a uh, production direction duo, a team uh, consisting of Powell and Pressburger. We're breaking new ground on that too. Have we done? We haven't done a directorial team before. Yeah, we've done the Coen Brothers. Oh, I take it back. Yeah, yeah, this is the first unrelated team. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so we're breaking old ground. We are. We are. We are. We are. uh, We are going to use uh, these guys. We're going to explore their incredibly stylistic fantasies and their heavy, saturated use of early Technicolor, which. Can be intense, but can also be beautiful. And uh, we're going to uh, look at some of the films from their hot streak that occurred in the 40s, uh, starting off with The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp from 1943, A Matter of Life and Death from 1946, and Black Narcissus from 1947, all of which should be available on Filmstruck or at your local Criterion uh, Channel Depot, uh, which isn't a thing, but should be. Um <laughs> But yeah, they, it's it's kind of more art housey movies nowadays. They were uh, pretty popular in Britain at the time that they came out. Uh, but we're kind of skewing a little bit away from pop movies, which we've been doing for the past two episodes. Kind of more towards artsy movies. Um, that being said, if you enjoy pop movies, I think you'll enjoy these movies. Um, for instance, yeah, these they're guys very approachable. Are, they're not yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, they're not like super duper weird. Well, okay, no, I take that back. Some of them, parts of it get <laughs> weird, but in a way that is accessible. And they do have a large influence on a lot of modern day filmmakers, including Martin Scorsese, who we just talked about last time. Yep, bring yeah. it all together. My, uh, Powell was actually Scorsese, one of Scorsese's mentors. Uh, we yeah, talked we about talked that about during that. the episode, yeah. <laughs> in the episode. Yeah, yeah. So join us next week to talk about that um if you like our content please make sure to follow us on uh twitter and or facebook for uh more interesting factoids updates on our uh schedule and topics that we'll be talking about and if you have any questions you know talk to us we're we're available on twitter we like to talk about movies you've got something interesting you want to point out you got a suggestion let us know we're always, uh, almost always available. Jonathan works days. I work nights. It's not like we work at the same place. <laughs> so you're going to hit one of us at some one, point. <laughs> yeah. One of us is always up. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And if you have friends that like movies, you know, use that share button. It's there for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. So you, we, we like all sorts of film nerds. Diehard film nerds, light film nerds, pop film nerds, artsy film nerds, Bollywood film nerds. We know there's a lot of you. Um... <laughs> We, we see the stats. Um, so, But yeah, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. And you can also find me, the narrator, Jason, at the Blue Jay 1994 also on Twitter. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. And if you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review or rating on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Budapest Crumplehorn. Is there an algorithm that's just combining letters? 
uh, or like is searching a dictionary, online dictionary for words that start with certain letters? So or did someone want- type all of these up into a random generator? So I think they've constructed seg. They've compiled a database of uh, segments of words that would work in different parts of Benedict Cumberbatch's name, like different syllables, and then they they just kind of smush them together. Um, and then each time you hit the button, it, it combines them different uh, together randomly. And I'm not reading every one because some of them are that come up are just not good. Um, but like some of them are. So I, I, those are the ones I read. Like bodybuild custard bath. 